the muscle is really not too concerned about whether I do eight times four minutes or four times eight minutes. It's more a, a total stimuli issue. It's more, you know what I'm saying? It, it, it aggregates. The muscle fibers aggregate a cacophony of, of cellular changes and that becomes a stimulus. And so we get so caught up in these details and we just forget that uh, it's just that's the, the, the muscle cell is not counting uh, the same way we are on our Excel spreadsheet. Well, hello to you all and welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast with me, Steve Ingham. Now, the Supporting Champions podcast is all about exploring the dynamics of high performance with people who have been there and done it, people who have supported others to succeed, or have explored some of these performance concepts that we're interested in, in some real depth. Now to this week's guest, and now we put this week's guest into a very select place in the world of endurance, one that has combined four often very distinct factors. First, quality academic research. Second, in a topic that contributes to elite performance. Third, creates a paradigm shift that challenges how most of us think about training. And fourthly, has been successfully applied to non-elites, the serious amateur athletes, or training for general population. Professor Stephen Saylor has captured, described, cross-referenced, and validated the unique training patterns of the world's best athletes and has found a somewhat remarkable, somewhat counterintuitive trend that the training that they do is polarised, that is differentiated. And that is the best endurance athletes make their easy training really easy and their hard training really hard. And so it's become known as the polarised approach. Stephen and his research group's contribution to endurance sport took a bit of time to become recognised, but it's now widely accepted considered and underpins the practice and thinking of coaches and athletes around the world. We have a right old natter in this discussion and in truth we could have spoken for hours more. We took a good couple of hours to explore psychophysiology, training, periodization, philosophy and we both coined some new markers of overtraining along the way. We actually sort of drifted into a fascinating discussion right from the off before we really even sort of started recording an episode as such, which is sort of representative of what you'll hear, much less a conversation, much more of a long-form conversation. I'm just checking out your bookcase whilst we're waiting there. Factfulness, yeah. tick. We've got a match there. Um, oh, yeah. Sapiens, I, I... tick. Bryson, tick. <laughs> Yeah, I have a Bryson. I, I think Bryson has his own category, or his own little area. On the, but I, I have two or three different, you know, I have this one, and then I have one at my university, and then I actually had to say store some of my books in, like, the departmental library. So, so when I one day gather all the books, then it'll be a mess. I'm even noticing... Chewbacca and Darth Vader, and then we've got a Tie Fighter just there. So we've, yeah, got a, we've yeah. even got a we've even got a. Um, well, we uh, have kids, so that's. <laughs> I've got two uh, girls. They're not interested in Star Wars at all. Oh yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then I don't know what, what the, why you have the Tie Fighter. <laughs> that's just me being a little boy. 
from the seventies. Uh, well, I have I have the book Dan- the dangerous book for boys, which oh. I guess you didn't. But that's a British, uh, kind of a nice modern classic, the dangerous book for boys, and it's from the UK. Oh. And it, it's basically a book with just different things boys need to know how to do, like tie knots and, you know, the, know certain historical events in Britain. And I think there's an American version of it, but the one I have is the British version. It's really, it's just a really, uh, what should I say? It makes, it's a feel-good book, you know? Yeah, okay. Uh, the, we've got, the, the girls have got um, uh, rebel ideas for, what, um something like rebel ideas for girls or something like that. And it's, it's, it profiles all of the amazing women over time that, um, you know, strong women, uh, suffragettes and so on, Malala. And, um, yeah, I actually, I'm getting old in my, uh, just getting emotional about them. So I'm, 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 as, as my testosterone wanes, (laughs) my emotions start to, uh, have started to go up. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's that's good. I, I have a boy and a girl, so I. Uh, in fact, yesterday I had a really good day because I had the opportunity one to join my daughter for a, an interval session. It was kind of her one of her last hard sessions before another ten thousand meter race, and uh, she did a twelve times one thousand. Went really well, and you know we were able to compare year on year. And she, you know, just said, "Oh, Papa, I, I, I realize how much improvement I've had." You know, it just the slow grind, you don't always notice, but then you look back and you know how it is. And you say, man, I, you know, th- this is working. The, the methods are working. So that was good. And then I jumped in the car with my son and we did a road trip. He's 16. And we ended up just driving. We had lunch and then we just drove for four hours and talked and chatted about stuff, you know, about growing up, about motivations and, you know, all these different things. And it was just so awesome you know to to have that opportunity as a as a dad because your kids are smaller but they grow fast and your role with them changes pretty quickly once they hit puberty and and so forth and so those connections get a bit fewer and far between farther between yeah yeah. and uh but at the same time they almost feel more meaningful because of you know the you know, we're going to remember that road trip together, that four hour drive, you know, yeah. and he and I said, you want to get out? You want to go do something? No, he says, I kind of like just hanging out in the car. You know? And so we we had a great time. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think I think when I um, 2012, I think it was something like that, 2012, 2016, I can't remember now. I contacted the local secondary school and said, look, is there, can I do some talks and get a bit of Olympics uh, Paralympic kind of inspiration going on and talk a bit science and um I got to know the head teacher and I could and so my intentions were good and sound but actually what happened probably was the head teacher started to favor my children or um remove any obstacles for them they they gave them a, a slightly easier pass and so they started getting uh, nominated for, you know, awards or these sorts of things. And I thought, oh, no, maybe I've taken away some of that resilience or that ups, those ups and downs. And yeah, yeah, yeah. No, just, it's, a, it's a touch and go deal. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, and, 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 I, and you get, I don't know what the age gap is between your kids. But, yeah, 16 and 13. Okay, well, they're older than I thought. Okay. Um, yeah, then they're following each other. And at least in the case of my son, he he kind of struggled with trying to follow his do- his sister. Yeah. Because the sister, you know, she's always straight A's or, you know, top grades and a good athlete, a dancer, then a runner and da-da-da-da. And he just, he kind of, it seems like he just chose to go the other way, in a sense, go the other direction and be the nonchalant, uh, you know, not so motivated kid. It was easier for him because mm. otherwise he was constantly being compared, he would be constantly compared to her. So, and to two parents with PhDs. So, so that's that's one of the challenges, I think, is these kids, um, depending on the sequence, you know, and, and what order they're in and all this stuff in the in the sibling flock is, you know, they they react to the, you know, because the teachers meeting them with certain expectations because they've had their brother in, in this or their sister previously. or You know what I mean? Yeah, or yeah, they yeah, okay. or they know their dad is the the a leader at the university and so they assume that the son is going to also love physics or whatever you know mm. so it's a bit unfair yeah uh, <laughs> Rosie's doing sports a level so she just finished the GCSEs or or not really finished it with this exam situation and um, and she said oh we've got a new teacher in sociology and. Uh, he he was taught by the person who wrote the book that we're reading. And I was like, well, what about reading some of my books? Right, right, right. <laughs> and she's like, no, 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 no. Dad, you're not cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that, I get so frustrated with my son because he does not acknowledge that I have any expertise of any use to him in the training area, you know, because he can learn everything yeah, he yeah. needs from YouTube. <laughs> is that why you got on youtube yeah so i've had yeah. to develop a youtube channel just to have credibility with him you know or just to and, annoy and, him <laughs> or just annoy him. actually he just laughs at my youtube channel because i don't have a million followers you know so until you get to a million followers you're you're not legit in that world you know no but you're legit and you and uh that's the that's the thing you the most people on there are not not legit yeah, that's a funny thing, isn't it? Just how how and I, I get it. You know, I you you push back against your parents. You you sort of repel against them. I think Rosie will only come to me around her training. She's she's a dancer as well. She yeah. only, only come to me when she's hurt, as in right. I'm broke. <laughs> I'm I'm broke now. What? Um, right. Which, which I suppose is the is the backstop of saying to someone you're a physiologist is they say, oh, can you have a look at my knee? <laughs> Yeah, I always, that's what I always, I decided pretty early on in my career that if I was going to work with them while they were healthy and if they got broke, they had to go somewhere else. I wasn't going to become a medical doctor. You know, I had to make these decisions regarding pathways and and where on the spectrum of development and physiology and medicine and and that I wanted to be. And, uh, you know, I wanted to be on the pre-hospital side for sure. (laughs) Uh, and the pre-physio, pre-rehab, you know, try to keep them from going there. And and do you coach your daughter? 
Yeah. So my daughter is the only athlete I actually coach day to day. You know, everything else is more just trying to coach the coaches in, in a lot of ways, you know. Yeah. So it's, it's going well. Uh, my daughter was a dancer for 10 years, uh, competitive in this kind of rhythmic free uh, acrobatic stuff. They do it a lot in the UK. She yeah. competed in the UK, even won a competition there. Um, but it was tough. It's a 10, you know, 10 years of running out on the dance floor, performing for 90 or hundred seconds, being judged by five judges, mm. you know, and, and then either going for, to the next round or not, you know, it, you know how that is. And it's just a really tough deal. And, and she did well, she was in the top five or six in Norway, but she was not the ultimate performer in that kind of scenario because she wasn't this natural bubbly girl that could turn on the fake smiles and 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 that and that was just part of the game was to to, yeah, yeah, to, yeah. to impress the judges and so finally she said Papa, i just want to stand on the starting line again i just want to be in a situation where i i you know it's all up to me i just run i either come across the line first or i don't and there's no excuses Instead of, you know, did I forget to smile right or did I, you know, was my fake tan not dark enough or or what, you know, all that other crap that was going on around the dance, the the actual physical performance that she was interested in. And and the the bad deal was that she developed an eating disorder. Hmm. Um, And, you know, you know, you're you're in the game, you know how tough it is in in some of these aesthetic sports uh, and and in, in, in a lot of other sports. So you know, it, it was an ongoing battle and, and it's still, you know, she's, she's healthy and everything's good now, but it's just still part of the, part of the, um, background for how I think when I'm training her is just to really be cognizant of energy issues of, mm. of all of that. So it makes me even more careful on, on sustainability of her, the loads and that, but it's going well. And, you know, and, and so, um, I guess in some ways in that situation, it is both a blessing and a curse that I am both her dad and her coach, but I've been through this journey with her. And so that does give me some background that helps, I think, me to be uh, a, you know, a a good coach for her right now in her career. And, and, And the time may come, I hope it comes if she chooses that she says, Papa, I'm ready to, you know, move to another coach or whatever. We'll see. Yeah. poor coach who takes on your daughter you're just going to be there in the background just going well, i wouldn't do that session <laughs> well no you know what that and i and i i am really careful about that like because i it's the same dish issue if you've been in a leadership role you know you you have as well uh i was in a leadership role at the university and when i went out of it I, that was the first thing i thought about was look don't don't be one of these uh shadow yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. leaders that is trying to second guess you're you know you're either in or you're out and so i think i will try to do the same is if i if that day comes that she moves to a, a different coach or whatever i will be all all the way out i will of course support her but i know yeah. that what too many That's cooks difficult. That's difficult. spoils the stew yeah you really have to uh, divorce yourself from that role if you first decide to go out of it. When I, when I left the EIS, um, I and it was a bit, bit of a wrench for me, but it was um, the 
I, I, I agreed with uh, my boss to to stay involved in one particular project around staff development because mm. I'd created it. Um, other people who were involved had left. So I said, look, I'll, I'll sort of continue to uh, sort of support it and make sure it continues. And, um, and then literally from sort of December the 31st, um, I finished. We restarted mid-Jan. Uh, and it suddenly just felt like, oh, dad's hanging about. Um, I was I was the uh, the dad who's just hanging about watching the teenagers. It, it was just this mental shift of no, you need to move on. You need you don't need me anymore. And actually, me going will force you to evolve and grow rather than me saying, oh, you should have done it like this. You should do it like this. Back in the day, we did it like that, which kills and stifles that innovation and that permission to innovate. Yeah, I, I agree, and I, and I think that's a great applicable lesson i i kind of my philosophy has been uh in a few different work roles is to try to get to the point where i can fire myself yeah um you know like i i worked with the hospital here for 10 years in a, in a kind of a research support or consulting fa- fashion and at some point i said look i'm giving myself the axe because you now your staff has all of the tools that I brought to the table, you do not need me. And and that's a satisfying conclusion to a, a mission, I think, is that you can kind of put pull yourself out of the equation, but you just need to do it fully. It's uh, much better than say, and then somebody saying, we don't need you anymore. <laughs> yeah, you know, that, and, and that's, that happens too. But in the best case scenario, you know, you can kind of both agree that 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 what you brought to the table you've done a wonderful job you've done and and it's been passed on and you you can move on with a good with confidence you know and and they're ready to work without you i you know i i'm i'm comfortable with that because i i kind of always think in terms of missions if you know what i mean you know not so much in terms of a job that i'm getting i'm getting paid but it's more about what's my mission here what's my purpose and then, and then have a constant feeling of what is the mission accomplished because you can overstay your welcome, I think, as a coach, as an administrator, as a leader, you know, different scenarios. There are times when you kind of perhaps you've lost your energy level or whatever it is. Yeah, and, and or the, and, the time, time now needs another fresh eyes on it. Yeah, that's right. Uh, for sure, you know, the skill set you bring to the table, your toolbox was perfect at a certain time in the development of that team or that athlete or whatever. And then they're going to need new. And and, I, and I'm not going to have a problem with that. If my daughter is so fortunate that she continues to develop and perhaps she's, some national coach wants to bring her under the wing well, and she wants that, then I say, oh, great. You know, that means I, yeah. I, my role has been fulfilled. You know, and I can just be the dad, which is a, a wonderful role that you can't, you'll never get to take that one away from me. No, know? no, no, that's, you can like something in a dad. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, wow. She's not an, she's not an elite athlete, but she's a, you know, she probably is representative of a whole <laughs> lot of girls that are in that, that are pretty good and, and have experienced big challenges. It's quite something when, when people are willing to speak to that vulnerability and, and have that emotional response of saying, yeah, I was in that situation too. And thank you for talking about it. 
Yeah, and un- unfortunately, it is not that rare. You know, we know that that eating disorders are a significant issue in in endurance sport and sport in general, but particularly endurance sport, particularly women's sports. So we just have to confront it and and deal with it. And it's part of the the reality of me being both her father and her and her coach. Yeah. We should probably we should probably talk about some other stuff. You up for that? Yeah. You're the you're the you're the boss here, man. I just uh I'll just answer what I know. <laughs> so look, it's great to connect with you today, Stephen. It's been it's been far too long. I can't remember the last time. Probably was probably at inset, maybe twenty thirteen. That's what I was remembering the last time that we shared a stage or or presented alongside each other. It's been it's been too long. How, how are things? Well, they're good. And I remember that occasion also uh, at INSEP, which is the French kind of the French Olympic Training Center. Uh, and you came onto my radar years ago with some of the research you were doing. Uh, I think in particular, I remember a study related to rowing. Uh, and yeah, you were the reviewer. You were the you were the kind reviewer. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, you know, because it kind of it kind of agreed with my philosophy, probably. I don't know, but I I don't even remember that I was the reviewer, but that may be true. Um, at any rate, you, you know, we've had somewhat parallel pathways. We would touch base because of different um, uh, conferences and seminars and and so forth. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, and then it, suddenly you kind of went flying solo. And I, I, I was, I was impressed by that, but at the same time I was like, wow, that's scary. You know, cause being the university guy that I am, it was scary <laughs> to think to just leave the reservation completely because us academics and, you know, we kind of get, we get used to having a paycheck come in every day. So, uh, <laughs> well, well, good on you. You talk about a mission. Um, and rather than being in a job, I think that's probably sums it up. Uh, I have a cause that I couldn't fully commit to that and, and also needed to challenge myself at a much higher level. So that's, that's in essence what that, that, that aligns with your philosophy too. But just obviously the, you have the heat of having to earn as well underneath it. Yeah, so I, I get it, and and uh, and I think you've you you had to do what you did in order to be true to your sense of mission and, and the particular issues. Which and another thing I find fascinating about you about or just several people I know in this area that we're all trained in physiology, actually, as far as I know, you your background, your PhD is kind of a physiological PhD, mm, right? Yeah. Uh, David Martin, who was at the Australian Institute of Sport and eventually moved back and joined the Philadelphia 76ers, you know, physiology guy. I'm a physiology guy. And we've done this and we've published in in the physiology circles and and the training issues and that. But what ends up happening is you you become more psychological, more, you know, you, you start looking at the physiology in kind of a bigger picture of the 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 mind body interactions the the psychological aspects the the motivational climate all of these things you 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 start saying well you can't really separate all of this 
You can't say I'm a psychology person. I'm a physiology person. We don't talk. You know, we see the athlete as separate. Well, that's that will not be a successful mm. strategy. So I, I find that an interesting kind of evolutionary process that happens with a lot of people that work in this high performance space. You realize that it is always some kind of it's a team process. Yeah, I think that that sums it up nicely. We if I talk to many academics that that you get a very quick understanding of of what their their topic their specialist subject is neuromuscular tendon girl guy immune guy girl whereas like my research for example has no common theme I, there's a little burst of some rowing stuff but that's phd um if anything it's performance that links them that in the in the broader picture that that piece of the jigsaw needed looking at because we saw potential there. So we went deep on it. And so in the physiology world, that was some warm up work, some altitude work, um, some training distribution work or a case study. But, and those are the only things that obviously that we were allowed to publish. But then probably the tectonic plates around 2008 meant that. I was, I was responsible for a system. So it wasn't just looking in my discipline. It was looking beyond not only other disciplines, but into other fields of actually, if we, if we don't turn up well, if we don't work well, we have a chance of making people slower. And so the bonds between us as people. And so we went, we went really deep on that specifically around teamworking and the characteristics of, of teams that perform under pressure. So that, that then becomes uh, adherence to this theme of performance. I'm looking for performance, but I'm willing to shift and use my, my scientific background to explore those, understand the credibility of those concepts, see how you could apply them to, to other worlds. And that's the now the challenge of the thinking, not only continuing to do that in sport, but challenges me working with a CEO of a big company. How can I introduce these concepts to your performance needs too? Right. Yeah. And, and I, I think there's some parallels there with my own career. Cause I, I was, we were chatting before this started and I did eight years in the, le in the leadership area for the university, you know, leading a whole faculty, the nursing school, the, 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 you know, public health department, all this and, and then working it even at a higher level for the whole university. And again, it was, it was some of those same issues. Uh, the, the problem was, is I had to be very careful with using too many sports metaphors uh, with people from the humanities or from the art department, you know. But the reality of team, the reality of putting together a team with these different skill sets and communicating effectively and putting the the mission in the middle, in the case of sports, it's the, the athlete, you know, the Norwegian model is all about putting the athlete in the middle, in the, in the center, not the coach, not the federation leader for the, you know, the canoe and kayak, whatever, but the, the athlete is in the middle. And then you support that athlete in their journey mm -hmm. with the different resources they need. And those resource people have to be able to communicate well together 
or else the athlete suffers, you know, from the hubris and from the alternative goals of these different players, you know, because all these different players are in some kind of a, what should we say, a developmental process themselves. They're all in a career development. They're all in a trajectory. And so things cross, people get at cross purposes with each other pretty darn quickly uh, and forget the mission, you know, forget the original goal, which was to help this athlete, this team, or this department, or this company develop, you know. And so I think you, you took that on as your total mission. Whereas for me, it's, it's just something that I realized was inseparable from the physical performance development process that I was interested in studying and supporting. Yeah, I think you're right about the metaphor of sport. I think it bounces from a lot of people. Um, they glaze over and just think this is going to be some sort of glib, if you believe it, you can achieve it type discussion. And But actually, we were quite concerted in our efforts of learning from a range of performance environments, not not just learning from within sport, what went well, what didn't go well, which teams excelled, which teams didn't excel. And the, the, spent, the time that we spent talking to NASA, to SAS, to those, those people that peak, those people that have to go and do peak performance, but also mm-hmm. the day-to-day performers, such as ambulance workers that go from case to case or to air traffic control that have to sustain performance in a job that could be perceived as quite mundane, but if you the severity, if you get it wrong, amplifies the necessity for you to adjust the way you work. That's, that's part of what we make sure that we are communicating. Yeah, it's a, well, you just raise all these, you, you, I get these memory flashes from what you're saying. For example, one memory flash I have is being a master's student, and we had to do a a cardiology kind of internship where we went, visited the local hospital and observed uh, catheterization procedures and so forth in the in the operating room. The, and I can remember one of those where, you know, it's early morning, you have this, the, the surgeon was a former uh, fighter pilot that did his, did his 20 year stint and then re-educated himself and became a surgeon. And he saw the two as very similar skill sets because he was doing this surgical procedure, uh, uh, what do you call it, arthroscopically. And what I was seeing was this team and I was watching and they're chatting, they're working on this human body, they're, they're you know playing with this heart and they're chatting it up, there's music going on in the background. It looks so mundane. You use the word mundane. They are making this highly sophisticated procedure look very routine. But then suddenly this woman on the operating table goes into fibrillation. And that's at that moment. Then you see expertise. You see cooperation. You see this amazingly fine tuned interaction among these different players in this team. And just within seconds, almost before I, as a lowly master student, was able to comprehend what had gone wrong, they had already fixed the problem. They had already solved the problem and were back 
you know, their heart rates are going down again. And I was just amazed because then I said, okay, now I get it. Now I understand what high performance looks like. High performance is about being able to, you know, make that sudden acceleration up into that space and work well together. Uh, And I think that's the kind of thing you see Mm. also in, in sports. You see it in athletes. A lot of what you're doing is the routine. It's the mundane. You get you're going out doing the work consistency compounds and athletes, you know, they're going out every day and doing the work in, in like, um, uh, an American marathoner said about this issue of, you know, I'm doing on the ordinary days, I'm prefer- preparing for something extra extraordinary. And I guess that's one of the characteristics of high performance environments is doing the normal things or the mundane things really well day in and day out. And then being able to, because of that experience, um, rise to the occasion. Um, you, another flash was David Martin telling, talking to me about, you know, David worked with cycling, but he slowly migrated towards the end of his, his tenure at AIS into the combat sports. Um, and then he starts meeting, he says, all right, I need to find out about some, the real combat athletes or the real combat performers, which was for him, the, the type, the special forces, military types Mm. where when they make a mistake, it's not that they get knocked out or they lose a point or get pinned, they die. And so he was fascinated by that, you know, their mentality and what he could learn from these high performance, true martial artists to, uh, his sports, the sports version of combat. And so I, you know, it was really fascinating to how you start drawing from these different, um, work groups, these different expertise groups, uh, around the, the, the performance issue. And, and, and the military is the same thing. They train and train and train until it's boring, boring, boring. And then one day it's not boring at all. One day it's life and death. So, so that's, that's kind of, it's just like, just like the endurance athlete or the team. And that is, is how to understand the connection between those, that boring continuity, you know, continuous, uh, training and, the uh, extraordinary moments of brilliance. Yeah, it's it's quite meta, but but ultimately there's a there's a parallel to be had there, a parallel to reflect and learn, not necessarily copy and paste. I think that's the way I'd look at it. So is this relevant? Um, you know, I, I talked to some of the guys at Microsoft when they're doing big pitches, and they 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 practice the pitch, they debrief after the pitch, they they film the pitch, they get significant people in the room to practice the pitch they troubleshoot projectors <laughs> yeah <laughs> so that yeah. it's slick that that they know how to to oh that's the toshiba f1 at six let's do this that the other or we've got our backup in the in the the car which means that their performance is 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 protected and and it means that they will convert more uh more probably right yeah uh, you know, and that, so there is a bit of um, OCD in high performance. You know, it kind of you build in a certain obsessive compulsive functionality in the way you think. You're trying to troubleshoot, anticipate, copy, repeat a, a few things two or three times more than maybe you really have to. So there is some, 
I don't think it's, at least if I look at a lot of the athletes that I've been around, they have a bit of, they're on the spectrum. Yeah. You know, yeah, I think so. I think that, I think the difference that, that I see a lot of the, one of the biggest observations I made when I first started working with the, the top rowers, Redgrave and Pinson and, and others was I was expecting, and I, I spent months pacing back and forth thinking, you know, I might need to step up not only how I perform my duties, but also how I come across. And one of the things that I was really uh, surprised by was when I went into that environment, there was, there was just doubt. So many people were doubting themselves. You know, someone, like, someone like Steve who's saying, I'm just not sure how this is going to go. And I'm like, God, wow. If, if there's one thing that would give me some confidence, it would be winning four gold medals going for my fifth. <laughs> but <Yeah>. but um, <laughs> so, so that in itself, the difference, I think, is that most, most people get suffocated by that doubt. Right. Whereas the top performers use that then to create action. Well, I'm right. doubtful about this, therefore I will do this. And the difference on the start line I think it's I think it's a, a misnomer. It's a, a myth that people stand on the start line and go, "Woohoo! It's going to be great!" I'm so wildly optimistic because that's my nature. I'm a champion. I've got a champion's optimism. They stand on the start line and say, "It's going to be great because because I've done all of these things that boosts my confidence in an authentic, legitimate way." Yeah, I, and I and I've had to have this conversation with my daughter, who's the the one athlete that I coach day to day, and and she is classically uh, a uh, an athlete or a, a person that always wants to do her very best, whether it's in the classroom or on the dance floor or now on the in the running arena. She is on the spectrum of OCD for sure, you know, in terms of, and she has self doubt. You know, these and then she says, oh, I wish I didn't have this self-doubt. I'm sure the other athletes don't have it. Well, you know, she's after she's read a lot of work from different uh, female athletes she admires. And she's realized that gold medal or no world record or no, they have all expressed self-doubt. It all expressed anxieties and uncertainties and just like you're talking with Steve Redgrave. So that doesn't go away with higher VO2 max or with a uh, higher performance level. At least I've never in speed skating, any, any environment I've worked in, I haven't seen that the self-doubt disappears, but the tools for handling it, the tools for um, overcoming and not letting nerves and anxiety overwhelm, but, but keep, keep them as a, as an amplifier of performance instead of a detractor. I guess that's kind of the magic is that the great performers can, can channel and find ways to uh, channel that, those nerves and that's that doubt into a, you know, starting line when the, when the gun goes off, they are at their peak. And I, and I, I just find that to be a, a fascinating, uh, process. Yeah. You know, I think, there's, um, there's an interesting dynamic that I've felt as a coach and as a support staff member at, at, at that moment before an athlete goes out to compete. You've got to portray a, just a little bit more confidence 
than you're than you really believe in <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. because the the athlete is naturally going to be doubtful as the noise gets heavy in their head and and they'll be looking to you for as a source of that confidence how's it going coach what do they think you know picking over the start or the finish or the fatigue or the the form whatever it might be and then and then in that position, you've then got to say, no, it's good. We're okay. It's, it's all right. You're going to be in a position to f- perform just a little bit more than you might believe. Because if you don't, they'll pick up on it. <laughs> and if you're yeah. wildly, wildly confident, it will kill its credibility. They won't believe you. Um, it's just pitching that. And that, that's, that speaks to the art, I think, of how we deliver uh, that you can descend into numbers, but ultimately you have to portray at, in, a, in the right way that enables somebody else. Um, and that's an interesting dynamic that no one ever teaches. No one ever really talks about um, in that, that cauldron moment of how you actually almost perform. Yeah. And yeah, it's just the other thing, though, or it's something that comes to mind is that I, you know, a challenge that I see with athletes and, and, and I'll again use my daughter as an example is that she gets sometimes caught up in some feeling that she has to time every workout perfectly, that, you know, the, the stimulus has to come at exactly the right moment for her to be at her exact peak on race day. And I've tried to say, my dear daughter, how many times have you trained this year? How many times will you have trained? Let's count. And, you know, it's hundreds. And I said, it's the hundreds of sessions that you've done that that are making your preparation for that moment, not the one. And that, you know, I try to reassure her with saying, look, you've done the work. You will not run faster on race day than your your training has prepared you for. But the training has prepared you for this, you know, the not the one epic workout, but the the hundreds, the, the last 50 that have gone consistently well, you know. And so it, there is a bit of a, a balance that has to be struck in terms of helping the athlete to see both the forest and the, and the specific trees, because they easily, at least in my experience, they can easily get caught up in details and forget all of that exceptional work they've done over time. And remember that that's what is, is putting them in a good position when they start at the race. It's all of that work. It's not, just that last interval session mm. or you know you, you know what i'm saying yeah yeah definitely and and this possible because this, this might be a nice segue into you know kind of getting onto your specialist subject and topic and an area because prior to this we we're just a couple of physiologists bouncing about having a go at psychology <laughs> yeah um, that's right <laughs> because we need to be careful with that um but the um the fixation around session design that it has to be this way it has to be in units of a minute for example um it has to be um it has to be structured in an orderly way i I wonder whether that comes that's that's as much for the coach 
to try and understand it and categorize it so that they can make sense of it later. I, I, d- I don't know necessarily whether it's actually useful for the muscle cell or the cardiac cell <laughs> to adapt. Right. <laughs> this fixation on control and numbers and, and order versus variety and change and mixing the stimulus that's probably much more in adaptations interest oh yeah i mean even if i zero in on you know the famous intervals training you know which is uh, it takes up so much space in both research but also in the minds of endurance athletes is getting their interval training sessions their high intensity sessions getting them right uh programming them perfectly and and all of the different variables that you can you can imagine are seen as being so critical but then when you do the research when you go into the literature when you and i've been involved in both descriptive and and intervention studies with interval training and and you find out well you know basically from the muscles point of view if we could somehow have a you know, a muscle fiber POV camera or sensor system, we would see that the muscle is really not too concerned about whether I do um, eight times four minutes or four times eight minutes. It's more a a total stimuli issue. It's more, you know what I'm saying? It, 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 It aggregates, the muscle fibers aggregate a cacophony of of cellular changes and that becomes a stimulus and so we get so caught up in these details and we just forget that uh, it's just that's the 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 muscle cell is not counting uh the same way we are on our excel spreadsheet uh and and when you understand that when you look at the literature when, when you see what what are the real true variables that seem to make a difference then you can actually relax a bit. Yeah, you ter- can. Yeah, it, in it terms of your programming that obsession. Yeah, and so that's what I try to help with the athletes I work with is say, "Hey, relax. This is not rocket science or artificial intelligence or whatever the current field is that seem to be the most difficult. It's not. It's not that difficult. But what's difficult is executing that that simple prescription because mm. my prescriptions for training." are simple they're not complex they're not complicated but day in and day out if they're not executed properly in terms of training intensity zone discipline and so forth then the outcomes are not as as they should be no and and without leaping back to our previous topic there i think that comes as much from necessity to believe in a program uh you but you as a coach I think you're looking to believe in a program so that you you're because you're or because you're craving certainty, uh, you're because of perhaps the pressure for results or the hope for another person's outcome. You're yeah. you're looking for certainty, and uh, the number of times that coaches have said that's my special sessions that that's the session, when actually really you mix it up, you throw the variables uh, up in the air as you say. And they all land in a different different set. It would probably be just as effective, but providing them with some certainty and perhaps some um, some observations. It was like this last time. We've, it's more or less the same this time, uh, and so that can give you some judgment. 
Um, I think that's that's an underplayed variable that a coach needs that certainty. But actually what the, as you say, the muscle cell or the athlete often needs is variety. Yeah, and, and I don't even like the word certainty, to be honest. Uh, I guess it's the statistics person in me is that uh, I like the word confidence in a, in a statistical sense that I have a, con- a certain confidence. And, I, and that's the way I kind of think about, uh, I remember having some presentations years ago where I tried to define successful endurance training, you know, and give it just a operational definition. And, you know, I said, well, for me, successful endurance training ha- is maybe, you know, that 90% of my athletes are able to perform at very near their best 90% of the time, you know, when, when they expect to, you know what I'm saying? So I'm, I the, don't, the probability of success, yeah. Certainty is not something I, I'm not ever going to say to an athlete, look, based on your training, I'm a hundred percent confident that you're going to get a new PB today or a personal record in the 10,000. That I think is for me, I, I just can't use that kind of language because I feel like I would be false with the athlete. Things do happen. You know, but I can say, look, everything I've seen in your training, you know, there there are no shortcuts. And your set training tells me that you're ready to be in that personal best range if you have a good day and the weather's good. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. I think underpinning it, it's probably the same um, same tenet that I'm, I'm more certain or I'm less certain degrees yeah. of. I probably wouldn't use those things. I'm certain you're going to perform. Uh, you know, that, that type of, uh, syntax at least. Yeah. Cause if I do that, at least if with some athletes, I think I can create too much, um, anxiety for them because then now they say, well, then now if I do not perform exactly up to that standard, I have failed because the coach said he was certain. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I, I, I don't know. Then we're back in this psychology arena where <laughs> the physiology is what it is, but there's a certain, I'm trying to, uh, you know, my daughter often talks about the Kenyan mindset, which, you know, the Kenyans just, it, at least in distance running, we tend to think of them as having this really aggressive, they're unafraid and they're, they go out and and they go out at a gold pace with great expectations. They don't always get to the finish line at that gold pace, but if they do, it's going to be an amazing performance. So they there's this certain degree of just of willingness to put it all on the line that they're confident in. So they race with confidence and with aggressivity, and and she finds that inspiring. Um, but, but they, they're not afraid to lose. And yeah. I think, okay. That's interesting. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think you, that the parallel, I think that I, I suppose I'm, I go around in circles on a number of these sorts of topics that we share an interest in. And, and one of them is, is about this idea of planning and periodization. Um, because ultimately the, the session can go out of the window in how when something happens during a session obviously something as traumatic as an injury means that you change but if you pick up signals of fatigue or um or distress uh, or anxiety 
uh, or equally that somebody is flying. Uh, to add or to take away from a session is often seen as a, as a weakness in some ways. I think people just you know, I've got to do that session. We put it down. We wrote it down. I want to complete the session. There's some there's something there that people are craving uh, completion. Right. Um, whereas what might be best is a different session, but you can only judge that when you're in it. Right. Oh, and I, I think that's a wonderful topic and a really important one. And that, you know, is just is uh, it was so I received a book from a fellow and it, it wrote agile periodization was a, was a subtitle. And I like that. I said, because I'm, I'm pretty skeptical to periodization when it when it's too rigid. Me too. Uh, uh, I, I hate the term in, in a way because it, it, it suggests some kind of a linear structure that you can just push the button and then everything go, falls into place. Well, we know that's not true. But agile planning, you know, I, I can get on board with meaning that, yeah, planning is important and we want to have a structure for our workouts and our but then we want to be able to have use feedback to make adjustments on the fly based on best uh, our best understanding of what these mean and, and like in the case of my if I use again my daughter her tendency is to to go to hard sessions with a big shovel she's ready to dig you know and so often I have to kind of put the brakes on and say look I don't want you to race this training session I want you to train this training session uh, racing comes later because that is another gear, you know, so this fine tuning, but then she'll say to me, she says, Papa, look, if I'm doing a hard session, it's going to be a big stimuli. And if I'm feeling great, then I may stretch the stimuli. If, if I'm already in the zone, in the window, I'm going to maximize my payout. So for example, yesterday, she, I scheduled 10 times 1000 meters you know, as a prep session for a big 10 K she's doing, she does 12 times 1000, you know, and, and we play it on the fly on the ninth bout, you know, I'm saying, all right, is it going to go, you're going to 10 or you're going to 12. And then at, at a certain moment she says, I'm good. I'm going to 12, you know, so she is working with her own brain and her own body. And she says, I'm in this zone. I'm, I'm in a good situation. I'm going to extend the stimulus. And she's making that decision as she goes and I'm, and based on heart rate and blood lactate, she was dead on right. She, it, it matched up, you know, with the feedback I was getting from the physiology and from the expression on her face. Uh, but there are other days where the athlete has to do the more difficult thing. And that is to cut, to go from 10 to eight or six, or maybe even scratch the session. Although I would say that that shouldn't happen very often if you're doing the appropriate making the appropriate intensity distribution and so forth. But it is not failure. It is part of smart training to say that I don't want to waste this day or this planned hard session when my body's not ready. I would rather give my body another 24 hours or 48 and come back and then execute, um, the stimulus that I want. But that takes real nerve and it takes real, um, confidence in the program. And in yeah, or, yeah, it probably, it probably requires a lot of setup in terms of anticipating that conversation months or years down the line and having cues to give yourself permission to have that. 
Look, now this this is perfect because I've got a question that I want to ask you about um, based on based on the the idea of being able to commit fully or, or really attack some of those higher intensity sessions. Um, it's actually based on uh, the case study that I published a few years ago now around distribution of training for a 1500 meter runner. However, I'll park that question for a moment because at this point, I need to do uh, the due diligence of asking you to sort of almost summarize your your kind of main thesis, really. Even though you said to me on our Twitter DM, um, can you please make sure you give me some interesting questions? This is probably (laughs) one of those, those that you were expecting. But, but there's an, a, lot, a lot of people that tune in that come from completely diverse backgrounds, teachers, business people, and they don't necessarily know, but I'm sure right. they are interested in the, the thesis that you created, almost like the, the TED Talk version. Have you, can you give us your brief um, overview of some of the, the main findings that you've, you've observed? Yeah. So my brief overview of the endurance training field of, of having studied elite performers in running, rowing, cross-country skiing, cycling, uh, orienteering, you know, a, a pretty broad spectrum, speed skating, is that the top performers, what we see is that they train a lot, but that roughly 80% of their training sessions, eight out of every 10 days, the the training that they're doing is more extensive than intensive. It's, uh, in, in the physiology lingo, it's below their lactate threshold. They're, they're doing longer workouts at a lower intensity that, and I often say it's an intensity that they, they can carry on a conversation while they're doing it. They're fit enough and they're, you know, most of us wouldn't be able to, if we were alongside them, but they are in this green zone, but they're doing the work. And then about 20% of their sessions are very demanding. So we gave this distribution a term polarized, in meaning that you know easy stays easy, hard is hard, but the best athletes do not fall into the very uh, tempting trap of all training sessions kind of pulling, being pulled in towards a middle, moderately hard intensity, which is very typical for amateurs, age groupers, people with not much training time and so forth. They try to get the most out of every workout and they all end up being very similar. So that's the basic thesis is this idea of polarizing, of having easy days, hard days, and and having the discipline to keep easy, easy, even when somebody runs past you or cycles by you that you know you can beat. Okay, so I picture it as a concertina. That um, that if you stretch the concertina out, that it gets the the ends are larger than the middle, um, and that a lot of people will will concertina and push it together, and it gets bunched up in the middle. Uh, that that hump versus the differentiated uh, lumps at the other either side. That's how I kind of picture it. Well, yeah, but if, I guess I've used the t- uh, the this uh, at some point I had probably read some cosmology books or something, but I use the term a black hole, you know, 
And and what ends up that that middle intensity, that threshold, as we say in physiology, that go out the door, you put on your running shoes, you go out the door and you just go pretty much at your limit for 45 minutes, you know, huffing and puffing, you get back and you feel good about the session. You've got some endorphins flowing. Well, this is a typical black hole situation where your physiology kind of constrains you and your psychology pushes you. And so you end up getting kind of pulled into that moderately hard zone, that moderately hard intensity that you can maintain for 40 minutes to an hour. That's pretty typical because that's about how much time you have. Uh, That feels good. It feels you feel like you've really done a good workout. You feel a sense of almost a euphoria because there are some hormones that you get out of the deal. Uh, Whereas the problem with that is, is that if you're an untrained person and you, you go out every day for six or eight weeks and you train like that, you will have a very rapid, good effect, but then you'll plateau quite quickly. And then what? Well, often you double down and you try to go even harder, but then you just, you just, stagnate even worse or you start getting used training is no fun anymore Mm. what whereas the the elite athlete over time with a lot of trial and error the experimental platform of coaches and hundreds and thousands of athletes over decades dating way back to before and during the cold war you know you you had this experimental process where the athletes have figured out that okay I need, you know, a, a frequent stimuli is important. I need a lot of volume, but I can't, I can't push my body into that zone every day. Otherwise I stagnate. So they, they have experimentally, I would say the athletes and coaches experimentally that, you know, you can go back to Peter Snell and to Lydiard. You can go to a lot of these fundamental Bill Bowerman at the university of Oregon that were basically discussing hard, easy, low intensity, you know, long, slow distance, all of this, and then in concert with the high intensity. And so slowly emerged a self-organizational kind of construct that has happened. And, and then, you, you know, you, at me as a physiologist, my interest was, well, what's the physiology behind this? What's, is it just culture? Is it just, you know, some pattern that's based on psychology or is there, are there physiological underpinnings? And, And what I think when you go into the stress literature, then you start to see convergence because then you start to see that, hey, we can go out into the work environment and see kind of the same situation that humans can can work extremely hard. They can be subjected to brutal levels of stress in short period, in brief periods, and they can recover. But you got to give them a chance to recover. But if, if, the, if the stress is moderately hard and just never goes away, it's just drip, drip, drip day after day, then that is what leads to burnout. That is what leads to overtraining in, 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 in sports. It's, it's a stress load that is monotonous and moderately high, hmm. right? But you can have very high stress loads, but you need undulation. You need your body, your brain needs this uh, undulation where you have the hard, the high intensity and the low intensity, you know, and, and it goes, look at the lie, look at the lion, the hunter, the, 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 the cheetah. I mean, they can do amazing, uh, just 
brutally intense moments of aggression. And then what do they do? They sleep for hours after they, they <laughs> nature has this undulation, you know, of, of rest and attack of work hard and recover. And, and it's the humans with our, that have brought in the clocks and the calendars and everything that have a tendency to move into a kind of constant stress type of approach that biologically just is a great recipe for burnout, overtraining, stagnation, and so forth. So the athletes have figured this out. Okay. So, so you've preempted a question that I was asking you later and I'm cautious not to go off on a tangent just yet, because I want to, to dig a little bit further about, so, so the, the tangent was around the application transfer of this idea to a broader human performance but but in terms of the polarized approach what's your assessment or what's your finding of the adaptive advantage is it the avoidance of that fatiguing black hole work training that is low or maybe equal in advantage but is fatiguing so that if that threshold type middle work is equal to lower endurance but it's tiring right or is so, it a, or is it a specific advantage to the more distinct time in lower and higher zones yeah uh i think it's a bit of both but but basically i after 20 years of working with this 20 years plus i kind of summarize it in terms of signal versus stress if you can imagine a ratio uh, where on the top is your numerator, your signal, the signal for adaptation, because that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to generate a signal at the cellular systemic level for positive adaptations. You know, we could start rattling off some of those, like more capillaries and more mitochondria, da, da, da. Well, signal is, is a goal, but we have to accept that with that signal, there will come a stress. There will come also some stress. That's on the bottom. That's the denominator. So it's signal to stress. And we're playing with that equation over time with the way we, the way we train, the intensity distribution. And in our toolbox is intensity and duration. As I have said, it, every day the athlete goes to the has to make the decision: Do I intensify or do I extend today? Ex intensify is the y-axis, extend is the x-axis. Meaning, I can manipulate the intensity of the workout and the duration of the workout. And what we know is that both of those are part of the stimuli part of the signal generation that we're trying to achieve. Well, what it looks like from based on measuring stress hormones, measuring recovery time, measuring all these different variables, it looks like what athletes have learned, endurance athletes have learned that if they use duration more and cut intensity, they can achieve a high signal for adaptation on many days with very low stress with a low stress response. And then some days they're gonna amp up the intensity, decrease the duration. They're gonna accept that they're gonna be a bigger stress response, but they want that, they also want that specific signal. So uh, often I would say that the endurance athletes have learned how to stay under the stress radar on 
a lot of their training days so that they get this stress to signal or the signal to stress, excuse me, ratio right over time. Mm. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and you got to really, you know, one of the ways when I give this lectures on stuff, I, the first question I ask coaches is that how many times are you, is your athlete going to train this year? And that number for elite athletes can easily be 500 or even 600, you know, right? And so think of that. That is a tremendous number of stimuli. And if you imagine that if they're a high-performance athlete, what, you know, Steve, you worked in this environment year on year, what percentage improvement would you be thrilled with for an athlete that's been in the game 10 years uh, year on year? 1%. Okay. Me too. 1%. Now, 500, 600 training sessions they will have done. And now you're going to tell me what the effect of each of those sessions, the effect of that, yeah, e yeah. that epic yeah, training nice. session was on that to, to achieve the 1% improvement. Give me a break. You know what I'm saying? So it becomes, you really have to get, get your helicopter, get in your helicopter, get up and understand that performance development process. It is not the epic workout. It is the, the continuity, the, the consistency, because you're going to be doing this 600 times this year. Yeah. I mean, I, the, the, the way I've sort of tried to digest this over the, um, over the time is the, the cake versus the cherry on the top or the drum beat versus the high notes, the prevailing wind versus the gusts and, and those sorts of metaphors. I think my, my general observation, and th this was specifically to the question that, that I wanted to ask you, the, and I can frame this nicely in the case study that, that I published, uh, I think it's 2012, 2011, maybe I can't remember. 2012. I've read it. I, I know this one. Oh, here you go. Uh, you, you quote it more than I do. Then, oh, uh, you're, I'm ready for you, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to start, I, well, gonna start love, saying, no, love, no, you didn't say no, that. I, I love this study. <laughs> so let's go. Well, let's get dirty. <laughs> um, all right. So the, the, what I would love to have communicated in the case study, but didn't, was that it was a real headache to actually convince the coach and the athlete to back down the training. So actually the frame was, you, you're not delivering what the coach asked. I'm not, I'm not going to campaign for polarized training. You're just not delivering what coach said. Right. Um, so the quantification through accelerometry and heart rate and so on, was meant that you are in this bunched up concertina lump in the middle. So the coaching that I had to give was stick with it, stick with it, please just stick with what the coach asked you to. Plus the coach wanted that to be actually delivered. And that was easier, low intensity training. Um, right. Now well, we we got to back up a little bit because you're not you're not giving us the background for this study here because uh, for your audience you're talking about your middle distance athlete right your 1500 yeah. meter runner yeah yeah so you got this oh. 1500 meter runner that's got a 338 personal best as I recall uh, he's been in the game for a good 10 years so he's not a new beginner so he's pretty stable at that performance level as I recall and he's you know you go in and you do a two year intervention. First year is basically based on just finding out where, where he's at, what he's really doing. And the second year, there's actually a few small changes. But the total intervention that was delivered 
was 20 contacts, six laboratory tests, as I recall, and 14 times where there was a sports science support actually measuring the execution of the training sessions, as I recall. And those 20 or 20 interactions were sufficient to dramatically change this athlete's performance and their physiology. VO2 max went up. Uh, personal best went from 338 to 332. And for those of us who know middle distance, that's from, you know, that's a, a quantum leap in, in performance. You're, you're now in the hunt for podiums in, in big races. So this was, and, and, and I read this back in 212 and I kind of like, oh, nice. But then I read it again recently, some months ago, because I looked at it with different eyes and the eyes were, the fact that what really helped was not anything very magical. It was just execution. It was exactly yeah. what you're talking about is saying, come on, athlete, do the, if, if you believe in the plan, then execute the plan. You're not executing. Yeah. There was no, there was no special model imposed from the scientific literature. This was an experienced coach and we just got them to do what the coach wanted. Um, yeah, okay. Yeah, and well, then they were finally on the same page. They were understanding things and they were, you know, and then things go well. I think you, that is what I, when I went back to that case study, I said, well, good grief, I was missing the forest for the trees here because I was looking at it through my lens of an imposed training distribution. No, 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 no. But what was really mattering was just getting the coach and the athlete on the same page so that coaches' prescription and trainer athletes' execution were in concert, were in, you know, and so that was a, I think, is a really good lesson. And the the nice thing about it was it wasn't a, a, a huge intervention. It wasn't, I mean, 20 contacts. Yeah, that's, that's, but, but you brought an athlete from being, yeah, I, I would say you took them from national class to world class. Uh, so yeah, he was Commonwealth champion at the time, but when we started, uh, Olympic finalist, let's say 332, the, um, so thank you for recalling the study better than I can. Um, <laughs> the, the, the intervention was probably the coaching side of the sports science, as in look, just stick with it, that, you know, this is going to be okay. And also, look, let's just give it four weeks and let's just reassess. And and that's that's probably quite a powerful coaching point, just to say, stick with it for a bit. And if it's going really badly, or if it's just equal, you know, that's <laughs> then we can talk again. So the the observations, I think, were that... There was a couple, once they got past the fact that they liked going out for those nine mile runs as hard as they possibly can, uh, an hour and a half, basically time trial, that, that's the endurance training that was happening. Mm. The, they started to enjoy their lower intensity training a bit more. They started to feel a bit freer. They started to look up a bit as opposed to looking at their, their GPS the, the other feature, and I think this probably gets to my point about the adaptive advantage, is that the, the athlete was convinced when they saw no degradation, no, they weren't any worse off at that lower intensity. They were just, they were just at the same sort of point. 
Um, but they were they had much much more capacity, energy, motivation, um, and effort that they could give to the the higher intensity. Right. And it's it's imperceptible on the graph that's included in the study. You cannot see it within the small change, but on the track on the day they were up for it they had right. they had vim and vigor for those sessions and it meant that i think to your daughter's example they were able to push harder and therefore potentially get more out of that particular type of session as mm. opposed to turning up for a hard hard interval session and just going through the motions just surviving it right yeah and so that it was a really nice uh, example of that reality that lesson and um, and I have seen it. I, I get emails, uh, so often just the other day I get from a, from a kayak paddler and he was discussing, he says, I by chance saw your Ted talk and it has just fundamentally changed my training. And I have, I am just setting new personal record one after the other. And it was really gratifying, you know, it's not unusual, but they, they finally, what he basically says, I'm actually enjoying training again. Because I don't feel like every darn day I have to suffer in order to be good, in order to become better. I have to do the work every day. But every day is not about having my eyes tunneled into my power meter or, you know what I'm saying? And that, yeah, yeah. Ju just that freedom of realizing there's a difference between getting out there and being consistent, doing the work every day and thinking that every day needs to be a suffer fest. You know, we have this, and, and unfortunately, the, the modern, um, what should we say, the modern uh, business model for trainers, personal trainers, coaches, and so forth is often, do you feel like to justify your existence, your, you've got to push them, you've got to, you know, whip, bring out the whip in the form of your training prescriptions and so forth and make them feel like, you know, without this coach, you know, I, I'm not going to push myself this hard, but that's not what it's always about. And, and unfortunately that fall, that happens a lot, you know, and, and the other thing that happens is that athletes train to metrics. Uh, I'm sure, you know, we have this amazing digital, technology that has developed in the last 10 years, we're able to document training. You know, the first training study that I did that was kind of foundational here on this polarized model, it was by, you know, the, the diaries were all by hand and then they were transcribed into Excel spreadsheets and so forth. Well, but today, what do we have? We got trainer training peaks or Strava or whatever platform you're on and everything is digital and electronic. And then there's even algorithms in these platforms that are giving you some numbers back, you know, stress scores and loads and so forth that are, you know, kind of black box algorithms. They're not necessarily validated with any hardcore physiology, but but they they're a number and we get obsessed with getting that number up. You know, what's my stress score? Did I train enough? Did I, you know, how many TSS or whatever session load or whatever number you're using? And, and so you start training to metrics. Uh, and that is a real one of the unfortunate 
what do we want to call it, negative side effects of otherwise what's a very useful development, the digital, digital platforms that are available to us for monitoring, helping us to see training in a bigger perspective. So that's, that's one of the things that has really struck me is the, you know, the digital age has amazing, creates amazing possibilities for having a better helicopter view of the training process, but it also tends to, um, promote or, you know, result in us kind of overdoing intensity training to metrics and so forth, instead of being in tune with our body. Yeah, and I, I mean, I certainly agree with that in terms of the sort of social pressures that come from, I mean, look at the, at the date of recording this, Garmin's down, um, and it's causing all sorts of anxiety of not uploading to Strava. And, and therefore, you can't publish your average ride speed as a way of showing off. I mean, what, what has the world come to in that sense? I mean, I remember one triathlete I used to work with, they came in to see me and I said, oh, what's that? That's a nasty looking head injury. Did you fall? And they said, no, I banged my head on a lamppost. Uh, I was looking at my watch so much and I ran straight <laughs> into a lamppost. That, you know, that, that in itself as a good example of the, we, we, the tails wagging the dog in that way of, as opposed to your subtle symptoms that are not quantifiable but are probably as powerful, if not more powerful, an indicator of how you're getting on. Yeah, you know, in Strava, I, I, I don't use Strava. I just, I finally, for the first time, it was this week, I finally figured out, I just said, okay, I'm going to connect my Zwift, my, you know, my training to Strava. But it's the first time in my life, I'm 55, and I'm finally actually connected to Strava. But, you know, I've been hearing it from my colleagues and friends for years about how they just, they would almost have to leave work if they saw that one of their Strava segment records had been broken. <laughs> you know, they would have to leave work early and go get the bike and warm up and go try to get their Strava segment PR back. You know, and it, it's just, it, that was the, that was like, oh my God, I, you know, I'm competitive enough as it is. I don't need that in my life, you know, and, and, <laughs> <laughs> so you know what they've introduced? They, yeah, I got back from a ride the other day. They've introduced local legend. Local right. legend, which means that you have over a, I don't know, 90-day period or something, you've ridden that road the most. And I quickly, and someone t um, texted me, you, you're a local legend, look at this. And I just said, no, that means I need more variety in my rides. <laughs> right, that I am getting obsessed with this. <laughs> oh, I just haven't chosen anything else. <laughs> but, but let me, you know, what's interesting to me is that maybe, it, maybe it's something about Norway, but uh, it, when I start talking to some of the all-time gold medalists and you know they of course they had training diaries and of course they were but but they didn't use metrics in the same way they they would write qualitative information how did i feel today what was the flow experience you know and, and they would combine yeah there was some numbers in there but not nearly as systematic and and mathematically sophisticated as today but unfortunately, a lot of that mathematical sophistication we see today is is a house of cards. 
it's not based on re you know, what should I say validated real measurements of say stress. You know, if I get the training stress score is just one example, and I don't want to be too harsh on it because it, it has its value in a bigger picture. But when you get into some of these stress measurement, these load training scores and so forth, and you dissect the underlying algorithm, well, it's just wrong. It's just not inconsistent with what we know about uh, the physiological responses, the nonlinear aggregation of, you know, and how stress responses occur in the body, how a three hour or four hour cycling session at low intensity, the first hour and the fourth hour are not the same, you know, at the cellular level. There is a, it's not a steady state. There's a degradation that's occurring. There's an increase in stress. Well, none of this is, is quantified and captured by these metrics in, an, in a way that is consistent with actual physiology. Because that's too hard. That's complicated. So at any rate, what I, you know, we just have to be a bit more, don't be afraid to just say, well, how do I feel? Well, you know, to go, to let qualitative measures still matter. Uh, you know, does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Graham, Graham O'Bree used to, he was the, um, he was the time trialist, uh, yeah. Olympic medalist in the time trial. And um, he used to talk about making the judgment when you're sat on your bike outside your house. He'd get dressed um, and he would show full intent. He would might feel as though he shouldn't necessarily uh, go out, but he would make the judgment when he sat on his bike. So it wasn't that sense of hassle that I've got to get dressed and I've got to get ready and all the anticipation of going out. He was going to go out, but he made the decision and the call as to whether he changed the session when he was outside, which I quite like. I like that idea. It's, it's, uh, it feels sensitive. Yeah, and it doesn't sound like a very strong degree of pre-programmed periodization. Uh, you know, and, and again, if you go back, sometimes I use the example, I throw up a periodization, uh, spreadsheet on the PowerPoint and, and, you know, and say, look, here's the periodization model. This is a well-established model for executing this, this, uh, you know, getting to the end event. But the end event here is the building of a garage. And, and, and in that case, a linear periodization is extremely exactly right and there is a very specific order of execution that that is the correct order of execution you have to lay the foundation before you you know you put up the 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 frames of the walls and the roof is not going to go on in the middle of the process it's going to go on towards the end You, you, you know what i'm saying so it's logical it is it is fundamental that there is an order of execution but when you move when you take that periodization construct into training it falls apart to a certain extent because the biology is not linear there, you know, and you get a lot of feedback loops, you get a lot of sensitivity issues, kind of somewhat butterflyish effects, meaning sensitive dependence on initial conditions and, and the exact training program you did last year that gave this great, you know, you hit two PBs this year for some reason, it's not quite working the same way. And, and you're not quite sure why. Was it the infection you had back in mid-March? Was it the toothache? Was it the, the stress of a divorce? You, you, you with me? So there's so many things that play in that periodization gets really messy. And that's why you need ag- agility. You need a certain degree of just 
letting your mind tell you, how do I feel today? And I think that's that art. And, and you still, I, I like some of these digital tools. I use them. I use power. I use heart rate. I, I measure. I last yesterday in my daughter's uh, 10, 12 times 1000 meter session, I measured blood lactate. I, we have heart rate data, but it was confirmational with what I saw on her face, which was, I saw a calm face that was under control. She was within herself. And, and that gave me a wonderful feeling that says this pace is going to be a pace. She's going to be able to be able to race at in 10 days. You know, so, so, so it's that interaction between the, um, the subjective and the objective that I think still does matter. There's still relevance for those subjective indicators. Uh, and if I take it one step further, I can even, you know, if having, you know, the literature, and if you go in and look at indicators of overtraining, overreaching and so forth, you'll see that what pops first, it's the, the canary in the coal mine is still the psychometrics, this, the how do I feel kinds of measures. Not, Isn't that amazing? Isn't that not, amazing in this world of biometrics that still prevails? Yeah, it's the first thing that, that triggers. Uh, the, you know, I, I've told this story before. I used to work with speed skaters from Holland and I would show up at their training camps and kind of be with them and interact with the coach and the athletes. And, 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 <laughs> and in that process, I came up with this thing. I called it the hair in the yogurt test, which was related to the fact that some of them had a bit longer hair. And if at breakfast around the table, you would kind of get a gestalt feeling of the energy level in the room. You know, if they're telling their wisecracking, they're telling jokes and they're smiling, they're ready to go. You know, they're, but if their heads were drooping, they were a bit quiet, hairs falling into their yogurt bowl, then they were not, you know, they're mm. tired. And, and that's not very sophisticated, but you know, that's still part of good coaching is to kind of f see and, you know, look into the eyes of your athlete and so forth. And, and that, to be honest, that's people are constantly asking me to coach them, you know, from a distance from all over. And I just say, I'm sorry, but I, I can't do that because I, I have, I still have too much faith in the importance of, <laughs> of, it, of that interpersonal interaction of looking the athlete in the eyes when we're talking and understanding how the training process mm. is going. And so I, I, I just would not feel comfortable with a, not only do I not have time, but I wouldn't feel comfortable with just a purely digital interaction. Yeah. I like that. Um, that I, I call it a tell and I ask people to try and identify their tell. So, um, some common examples would be sore eyes, uh, an ulcer, mouth health, for example. Somebody would just feel a little bit breathless. Uh, some of these little subtle symptoms. And, I, and that's your, almost like a game of poker. That's, you know, you're, you've got something or you haven't got a good, good hand. That's your tell mm. that you need to pick up on. Um, yeah, and like you're, you're talking about a little like a cold sore. Well, what is yeah. that? Well, that's a there's a latent virus that's that's hovering in your body, but it usually doesn't pop up unless you are under a lot of stress, right? So it is, it's it's a canary in the coal mine again. It's kind of a, a, an indicator at the individual level 
uh, or the headache or the, you know, whatever you're, you're using these different tails. I used to have a point on the back of my head that if my training session in rowing was extremely hard, it would be just like I'd been hit by a hammer right on the back of my head. I can still push on the point and it would tell me, oh my gosh, you know, that session kicked, kicked my butt. I have no idea why that point would become so painful. But but I think we all have these tells. I've got, I've got a new one. I found a new one just this week. Uh, I've got a new indicator of fatigue uh, or detraining. I'm not sure which one just yet. Um, so <laughs> I, it's so I found this out. But it's also a disconnect between the physiology and the psychology because my mind hasn't quite caught up yet. And that is if I get off my bike because I'm convinced the brake is slowing me down, um, but it's not. <laughs> so you, you know when you look down and you think, it must be rubbing, I'm going so slowly. And then you even look back and see if you the, the back brake is rubbing. And then you're so convinced you have to get off and run the wheel to see if it's right, rubbing. Right. Or, or the, <laughs> the, the tire is deflating. Yeah, I, yep, yep. I've heard this exact conversation. <laughs> or I've seen it on Twitter. It's amazing. The guys, they'll use, they'll say, yep, you know, I'm checking the brakes. I must, I'm having a bad day, you know? <laughs> so. uh, all right. So a phrase that you've, you've mentioned there is athletes have worked it out. And uh, I know this is, this underpins a lot of what you've found. Um, I remember writing the review for Will Hopkins website article, which I still refer to refer people because it's a it's a thesis in itself that you wrote um and i i think i wrote it i wrote the review it was in the centenary uh, double centenary of charles darwin's birth 2009 so it must have been that yeah about the evolutionary aspect of of athletes finding their way they're deselecting and they're selecting uh, their training that's that's would that be a fair summary of, of? Yeah, I think so because the sports arena gives, like, you know, Darwin basically said that the environmental conditions, the constraints, would over time lead to very specific adaptations through a random process. Well, for the athlete, that you know, getting over the a, a bar in a high jump or running a specific distance is a very specific. Goal, a very specific survival goal, <laughs> and so it does create the platform for a trial and error kind of approach to the training process, and 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 it has happened over time. And you have highly motivated athletes that are willing to experiment and stretch their bodies in different directions, both in in intensity. And in duration, and we have these amazing examples of, you know, Pavel Komi and 100 times 400 meters. And, you know, just <laughs> if it can be done, athletes have tried it at some point and coaches have been involved. And so it is, I think, a wonderful uh, arena that's kind of accelerated Darwinism in the sense of the adaptations that lead to success, the morphology that's associated with the athlete's success. You know, you can go to a track and field competition or athletics competition, and if you've been in the game a while, you can almost just look at the athlete and know what event they do. 
if it's at a high if, if it's a high level competition right if you're watching the world championships you just look at them and say oh 1500 meter you know uh, nope no this is the 400 meter how do i know that because i'm looking at their bodies they they have you know the the and and the training process it's hidden but it's there's a similar kind of evolutionary pressure on the training process as well uh, so I feel very comfortable with using that kind of nomenclature or, or construct in trying to understand how training has evolved. And it also, you know, Darwin said, hey, this is some ran- this is not all this is not thought out in advance. It's random. But sometimes the random mutations lead to improved survival. Well, it's also that way in training is is if we look at both training and technique, particularly on the technique side, you'll see that there have been some random, some random uh, things that have happened. You know, Fosbury with the flop technique, the 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 V the V technique in in uh, ski jumping, uh, the the clap skates in in skating. Some of these kind of almost random events that turned out to give a unexpected advantage. And then they just quickly take over, you know, like the, the, the black moths on the, on the, on the dirty sooty tree, you know, bark that survive better than the white ones. They very quickly take a, uh, take over, right? Well, this is, we've seen examples of this in sports as well is almost singularity, random events that have changed technique, changed some aspect of sport uh, of the sport they do, whether, you know, aerodynamics and cycling was also like that, you know, just some, 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 uh, <laughs> almost random people who came in and said, oh, I'm going to bend over and get into this very mm. weird position. Cause I think it makes a difference, you know, and people looked at them like they were crazy. And now that's the, the way you do a time trial, you know? Yeah. Okay. So this is interesting in, in the sense that this, it's not necessarily optimized, it has become more optimized or it's 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 evolved towards this model and and this this idea has it's probably it's troubled me quite a bit and dominated a lot of my thoughts certainly over the well throughout my career actually and and so I'm, maybe I'm, I'm asking you for this to so you can help me out but and a disclaimer here I might go around in circles <laughs> um, but the the best given finite time they have to invest they they've got to invest in a sporting pursuit they choose to train in this way and the argument is based on that's the way they train and therefore there must be some legitimacy to it and now i'm thinking of evolution that draws are and favors certain characteristics and selection but I'm also thinking of vestiges and I'm thinking of the laryngeal nerve that loops down under the aorta that just doesn't make anatomical sense right. or the vestige of the pelvis sitting in the whale that's not doing anything. It's just there. And it's it probably hasn't had enough selection or trauma to move these out of the way. But we are not perfect beings. Um, we We're... A product of evolution over time, and so this is my this is my question about 
whether you've thought about this idea of almost optimizing based on not what people are doing, but first principles approach. And I'll give you a slight example there. Um, so the, the, again, a couple of more papers that I refer to. First, my warm-up paper uh, and Kate Spilsbury's paper on training. So warm-up paper, I spent 10 years observing what track and field athletes do for their warm-up and trying to convince coaches that a slightly different approach would be better. And they were having none of it. Uh, that's what they did before their competition. And mm. a 10, 15-minute jog, some strides, some stretching, uh, some some bursts uh, of 50 to 60 metres seemed to prevail as the way of warming up for most track and field athletes, whatever their event, <laughs> besides a few jumps or whatever it might be for various different things. Then we started talking about, right, what could we do if we designed a warm-up from first principles approach of priming the energetics beforehand so you switched on a bit quicker? And lo and behold, when we actually tested it, that it then created not it created improvements in performance. It also made people uh, resist fatigue towards the end of a, an 800-meter race. So my question is about, are, is, is your body of work creating a reference point upon which we could kick on to look to see if there are first principles approach to adjusting it in the future? Yeah, so it's a great, and, and, and I have to, again, if I'm presenting for an audience, I've often, I've had a slide that says something about my approach to studying uh, the training process. And, and level one has been, well, let's look at elite performers, see what they actually do. This is what we're talking about now. Uh, point level two, let's, you know, go into the physiology and see, is there, um, do we see correspondence with the physiology, the molecular biology? So you're cross-referencing. You know, then we can we can generate hypotheses and test them in the laboratory with intervention studies. But usually, we're not going to intervene on our elite performers because they're not going to go for it. So what do we end up doing? We drop down a notch or two in the performance hierarchy, and we test it on sub-elites. So that's been, we do, there's, you know, a, a, a significant amount of research that's been done in that way. Uh, and so we have these different levels of cross-referencing the self-organizational principles that we think are kind of somewhat at play at the elite level with first principles, uh, physiology and molecular biology, with intervention studies on lower level athletes. And, and then a, another level of that's interesting that's happening now is because of digital tools, because of big data in a sense, or it's at least getting close to the definition of big data. Uh, we can interrogate uh, some training issues in a crowdsourced way. Uh, you know, like the, the COVID-19 uh, situation has accelerated for me a process where I can, develop studies or questions and I can actually recruit subjects globally because they have power, heart rate, perceived exertion. I can get good data, laboratory quality data, 
you know, there's there's a little bit of fuzz in the sense that there's different they're using different power meters and so forth. But because of the the scaling effects, that problem goes away. So I can actually recruit dozens or hundreds of people to do a specific kind of intervention or workout or distribution. And I think we're going to see and I'm already I'm already finding this to be a powerful tool to supplement the laboratory studies to check against the elite performance organizational behavior. So what I'm describing for you is a kind of a, at least I would say a triangulation approach that, that I will, I use and that we're trying to use to understand the training process. It's not just, well, we're going to assume that because athletes have done it and they've been successful, that that's the right thing to do. Because I'm, I'm very sensitive to that there can be cultural, there can be traditions, there can be inertia of different types that are having, you know, that are impacting what they're doing. And, and not all of it is just based on is it the right thing to do physiologically. Um, so I, I'm with you there. And, and that's why we've tried to mesh together these different uh, methodological approaches to try to, you know, constantly calibrate and cross-reference and qualify that process. And so, uh, but so far, I would say that that at least in the bigger picture, these organizational issues like the training intensity distribution we've seen, it does scale down. Now, the interesting thing is, is that, you know, historically, if we go back to my upbringing in terms of my training as a, in exercise physiology, which may have been similar to yours, but at least in the United States where I was trained, what, where did exercise physiology, how did it evolve? Well, you, you had physical education, you know, it came from the physical education department and physical education gradually evolved into kind of an exercise science, uh, name and, and thought process. And then what do you do? Well, these exercise, these early days exercise scientists recruit their students, the physical education students into intervention studies, right? Six weeks from, you can do it in the spring semester. Uh, you know, so you're following the semester plan of your university. You've got about this many weeks before spring break. So you can do a six week intervention study before the darn spring break hits and they all disappear for a week. So you, Everything about these training studies that dominated the literature for a couple of decades were was kind of the 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 constraints of the university physical education department and how and the students. So you were you got a lot of data from untrained people that went from untrained to moderately trained in the six week process, right? And that that's that kind of told us what we thought we knew about the training process. But but the the elite athlete obviously is not constrained to six weeks. They're not. They can train more. They can they train over a longer period. So there was a mismatch between the early literature on training and what was I was seeing, at least from elite performers. So we have to we have to keep in mind that issue, which is that. Uh, we as scientists, we also have our limitations. We also have our hidden biases and constraints that are a function of the, the laboratory, the uh, work environments we have, what, what our limitations have been as far as recruiting subjects, uh, the intensity bias in the literature, because we don't tend to want to do four hour studies in the laboratory that takes too long. It's too expensive. We won't get it done. 
So we shorten things up. We do intervals. You know, we study interval training because it's fast. It's effective. So there's all kinds of cultural biases also on the science side. Mm. I think the um, I'm totally with you. And there's a few areas. I think this has been a balance for things like ice baths, where um, the, that short termism approach has sent sports scientists off into one realm and actually not to the the benefit of an athlete necessarily but equally the the ideas that we we're handing down over the generations behaviors as opposed to something that would enhance the genetic response to a training stimulus um i think that's um that's my that's the heart of my thoughts and concerns here is that the resistance so the evolution and, and selection towards something is f- fine, accept that. But the resistance to change that based on even evidence or first principles approach would be quite high because people aren't, like you said, like you said they're not willing to just mess around with their careers. They want to go for something that gives them some confidence or they've got some assurance around as opposed to inventing a completely new training regime and the population that we're talking about, those elites, aren't willing to do that. Well, and I think you're touching on another issue, which is that if you're in a position of power, meaning you are currently the podium dominator, why would you change? You know, so there's a conservatism. uh, I'll give you a great example, cross-country skiing. Cross-country skiing is dominated by a few countries, and it has been for decades. And the innovation in cross-country skiing, you know, technical innovation, you know, the skating style that came in in the late in the 80s, 90s, it didn't come from the dominant programs. It didn't come from Scandinavia. It didn't come from the Swedish or the Norwegians who were putting they were winning. They resisted the hell out of the skating development. It was the the people that were struggling to keep up okay. with the Norwegians and the Swedes and were looking to say, well, we got to be creative because we can't match them head to head in the classic style. And so then you, you know, you get this quasi skating technique that develops that ultimately evolves into a full skating technique. And then suddenly the Norwegians and the Swedes are like, what the heck is going on? These upstarts from middle Europe and the United States are trying to mess with our sport and they, they resist, Right. So innovation often happens uh, in the, let's not say, it's not among the top three performers. It's the ones that are, that are struggling, you know, a few, a few steps back because they're more willing to take some risk because they're not in the dominant position. They, they have less to lose by risking and trying new techniques, new methodologies and so forth. So that's it for me. That's an interesting, you know, parallel is that innovation uh, and companies that start out as being very innovative often become conservative once they have success. They, They evolve towards conservatism once they establish themselves at the top of the hierarchy. Athletes do exactly the same. I, I, I call it the paradox of success. Um, that the open-mindedness you can plot over the course of an athlete's career and probably associate it with gold medal achievement. That open-mindedness is through the roof uh, when they're on the up and when they're bronze medaling, silver medaling, 
when they become a gold medalist, they start saying, oh, I'm not sure about this idea that you've, crocked up, you've, you've um, concocted now. And then the crystallization of the training program prior to becoming Olympic champion is, is something that's very difficult to then penetrate, particularly when you then have to change or there's a, there's a greater pressure to change. That might be a stimulus for it. But I think one of the antidotes for that, particularly if you can be anticipatory around it, is to instill good debriefing methods. That means that after a, a small competition, you debrief, what could we do differently? What are the gaps? What are your reflections? After right. a medium and a, and a high level competition, it's, it comes, becomes habitual that you're looking for that, that change. Um, so you're ingraining it early. That's my, that's my thought. Right, right. Well, there was a, you know, there was a great cross country skier in Norway named Bjorn Daly. Uh, he's, he's still he's still alive, but he's no longer active uh, skier. But he won eight gold medals in the Olympics, and for a long time he was the most winning skier. And he said at one point, he says, "Look, uh, world champion or gold medalist is something that I have been, and it's something that I can be again, but it's not something I am." And that was his attitude, in a sense that to avoid that. Um, what should I say, uh, inertia, the thinking I am a gold medalist. He says, I have been one, I can be one again, but I will have to do, I will have to continue to renew myself. <laughs> uh, and so that was, I thought, mm, uh, you know, that's a, nice. a, a very re- good way to think about things. But And that's, and th- that is one of the things that has, if you go into these athletes like Redgrave, like Daly, like, uh, uh, there was a, a famous uh, Norwegian uh, cross um, uh, biathlete, you know, with so many world championships over so many years, is that they are able to find the find a reason to renew themselves, find motivation in small changes and small uh, additional, you know, improvements never being satisfied, you know, if you get, if the athlete gets satisfied, then probably they're soon ready to move on to another arena. Uh, there's a certain degree of dissatisfaction or not being, you know, still feeling like there are is room for improvement. That seems that I, you know, find fascinating with those, those athletes that have the really long careers that have, you know, win multiple times. Uh, at least in that rare echelon, they'll say that, you know, it's the second gold medal that's really tough. Not the first, the first one is tough, but the second one, in other words, to maintain the level of commitment and motivation and renewal and innovation to be able to improve and, and win again and again, that's, that's phenomenal stuff, you know? Mm. Yeah. Well, Steve, Steve said to me very early on, I asked him what he what he thought of all this sports science stuff, and he said, "You're the first person to ask me, which is a different topic, which is not a good thing." <laughs> but no. he also said, um, "Don't turn up and tell me that your study on college athletes is going to apply to me." Um, <laughs> he, he, I won in '84 when we p- trained part time interval sessions. We trained full time and did inter- a lot of interval sessions, and won in '88. We changed the training loads to low intensity work with Jürgen Grobler's regime in 92 and we won. And then we added weights for 96 
and we won again. So don't tell me you've got a special training regime. You just need to do lots of it <laughs> and lots and, and some variety here and there. And that was right. his simple big, big pitch of view as to this is what I need to commit to. And yeah. you sports scientists are a little bit annoying when you turn up and say you've got a special insight that threshold training works. <laughs> yeah, yeah um, it's, a, it's a way of life that they adapt, adopt and adapt to, I think, you know. Yeah, and, and equally, the, the big pressure that he felt, he had a winning method at 37 years old. Uh, is that right? No, 36 years old. He had diabetes, which meant that we then had to mm. focus on training volume, but in smaller bursts and dietary interventions around right, that. Right, right, That right. was the big change that happened. But volume stayed. Um, it was the manner, and the, the, the sort of, the sort of portions of training that that change the the shorter bursts. Yeah, and, and we can. There are some reasonable case studies. I, I, I guess you never published anything on Redgrave that I know of. But no, no, the didn't. The, the kiwi. What is it? The kiwi pair. There's a wonderful case study on. Um, you know, they were a dominant pair, and there are some. And what that also that study points to is is just evolution that they had to adapt to changing bodies, changing, uh, life situations, uh, you know, a back injury on the one that changed the way he accumulated volume, you know, he had to ease up on his rowing to protect his back. And, but they managed to, you know, navigate around these issues and continue to win. You know, that pair, I think was, what was it? How many times they won without being defeated? They were, you know, they weren't defeated in a hundred races or something, you know, mm. Uh, but they, their, tra their training did change across over time. There were some foundational similarities, but there was some adjustments. Just the fact that the, the athlete 10 years prior and the athlete today is not the same person, you know, it's the same person, but they do not respond to training the same way they, their epigenetics may even be different. You know what I'm saying? There, there's so much that's, that you have to take into account. Uh, so even within the same athlete, you can't say, well, I have the recipe because it's a, it's a continuously evolving, uh, human that you're working with. Let me take that, um, that point about small changes to ask you maybe the last question, because I'm conscious that we've been nattering away for quite a while now and, and maybe, um, wrap this up a little bit, but the, you made this point earlier about the transfer of this differentiated, polarized approach, but also matching it and observing it in other fields. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about the, the idea of habits and automaticity where well over, if not higher than 95% of our working day, we do things that are automatic we have a routine. We don't really need to be engaging the frontal cortex too much. It's habitual. But the other 5% is an important bit that we need to make sure we're, we're protecting and that we're focused and we're delivering and that we're meticulous. Um, what's your observations about the, the narrative of what you've discovered in elite training habits and how it links to the broader human behavior, human performance? Well, you know, I, I've one thing that's nice about working at a university is you meet 
experts from different fields like art, music, you know, the, the heart, the, the, you know, molecular biology, whatever you might say. And, and I think in all of them, what I often see is these, uh, bursts of creativity. Uh, you know, and, and if one time I had the, as, as a leader at the university, I, I gave a lecture to the, the arts faculty. And so this was a mismatch. You know, here comes this sports scientist, physiology guy that is now going to try to help the faculty of the fine arts and music improve their artistic research program. And so I thought, oh, boy, this is this is, you know, and I'm asking for a failure here. I need to get into this in a different way. And so I I happen to be interested in impressionist art. Um, you know, Van Gogh and that, that group around the late 1800s that developed in, in Paris, early 1900s. And, 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 and I started looking at the, what they did and how they worked. And I said, well, they were creative geniuses, but they also were systematic. There was a lot of, it almost looked like science, what they were doing, you know, cause you would see repeat, you would see the same motif that would, they would, they would paint a hundred times in different ways, trying to get it right, understand color and light and all these different things. So science, a kind of a systematic scientific approach and creative genius were kind of mixing. And I think if you go to the other side, if you go to our world, the scientific, you know, uh, the sports scientists or, or, you know, we're kind of the same, except mostly we're systematic, but occasionally we need time to just be purely creative to, really think about models or constructs, uh, you know, sometimes just me, my moments where I'm satisfied with the day is I managed to paint a picture in a different way, in a sense of a drawing of the data. I, I managed to convert numbers into a picture that I think will be a picture that people understand. And that's that creative component that I, you know, I'm, I need to be on to get that to happen. And it doesn't happen. It's not something I can systematize. It's not something that happens on the hour as I plan it. And so I, I think that's where that idea of, you know, this 80-20 or automated versus creative or, you know, the, there is some there are some parallels there. And and uh, definitely I find that in my own work life and my own way that I do things. Yeah, just answering basic emails and grading exams and a lot of that. That's pretty much autopilot stuff, you know, versus trying to prepare, you know, think about a new research project or prepare for a, a, a international guest lecture and try to think, how can I, you know, what's, uh, you know, I'm trying to develop a new construct for how to explain this idea. Yeah. Well, that's for me, some of them, that's my uh, creative artistic arena. And that's the 20 percent for me. That's the high intensity. That's that, you know, we're all brain weight, all brain cells are operating, you know. And so I, I do think that that we all have that or, or at least we should we should create space for that. We should understand that ebb and flow and not expect every hour of the workday to be equally, uh, what should I say, intense or creative. Yeah, I like that. Cre creating space for it. And I, th I, I would always see that as, as almost creating some special conditions around it and, and some habits that support it. You know, back to Darwin, when he got stuck, he would do his walk 
around the grounds. Yeah. Uh, so so would Newton. So that it it changes the mindset. It allows creativity, alpha alpha brainwave activity to allow the next level. If you get stuck, then you change the conditions. If you need to be creative, you change the conditions as opposed to, and and, and for an athlete, you know, if you've got uh, a serious session coming up and it's going to hurt, and you're going to have to dig in. You change the conditions around it. Right, right, and 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 I think we have to if we think about training camps, you know, going to altitude or whatever. Just we often get into this discussion about the actual, the physiological stimuli. You know, we're reducing oxygen availability, but there also is this camp issue, which is you know that you're changing your environment, you're removing some of the uh, typical frustrations of life of, of having to go to the grocery store or whatever, or fix the car or send it, you know, and you're just barricading in. And so the training camp environment, changing the environment, all of these things play in to understanding the training process. And I, and I think also, like you say, play into the work process. I, Every once in a while, I get embarrassed because I may be around, you know, I, I was with a significant other, but then I suddenly I'll say, I, I'm sorry, but I, I just had this idea and I don't know if I'll be able to remember it. Can I leave? Can I go write this down? You know? <laughs> because part of my brain has been off, off working on some kind of a issue, a research issue or a physiology issue in the background. And finally, it's come to an answer but it's come to that answer during dinner or out on a walk with the, the, you know, the partner that the timing is not very good, (laughs) 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 but I don't want to lose it, you know? And so I think, and of course you do have these people that that's why they always carry around a little notebook and they can, they can jot down something because they, they don't want to lose that burst of of creativity so uh, i don't think my brain works that well you know i I don't need to have a notebook but uh (laughs) a number of ideas that i've lost on the bike yeah that's a great idea we should do that we should we should move our whole life to focusing on that and then by the time i've got back i've forgotten it which is probably a good thing for my wife yeah yeah if you forgot it that quickly (laughs) it might not have been as good about it but but at any rate i i do think it shows that our brains are often ruminating over and working on problems in the background there is parallel processing going on uh, I often try to even, cause I just, cause of reading the literature, I'll try to even use it to my advantage and I'll try to think about that problem in the minutes before I fall asleep, hoping that somehow that's going to trigger some subconscious continuing education that's going to go on while I'm sleeping and I'm going to wake up with a, with a, you know, epiphany. Uh, but you know, I, I make a little bit of fun of it, but I do, I think all the re- research on the brain and, and, and everything does also show that, yeah, this, this stuff is going on. And, and part of what we call procrastination uh, is actually gurgitation. It is, it is a process that is going on, that is not fulfilled, not completed yet. And then there, there comes, you know, <laughs> maybe partly pressure helps, but partly just Time helps to get us to the point where it's, ah, now I know how I'm going to say this. Now I know how I'm going to deliver this or how I'm going to organize this. Uh, it, it, you know, and so I find that an interesting process. And I think that it falls into just the fact that, you know, again and again, research shows that, that 
human brains can handle big amounts of stress, but you've got to, you've got to build in it, it, the human brain functions in an interval session kind of approach. It doesn't do really well on threshold sessions. If you think of it that way, <laughs> the human brain gets tired pretty quickly with just repetition and, and monotone loads, right? Whereas it handles undulation, it handles spikes and peaks and, and high stress and, and bursts of creativity. That, it, that seems to work better for the human brain. I don't know what the evolutionary explanation for that is, but um, maybe it was that that's how dangers happen. They tend to come all of a sudden uh, and you had to be able to respond very quickly. I, I don't know. But, but at any rate, it seems that that's the, the human brain is not particularly uh, design for just going into third gear and staying there for, no, for seven it's, hours. Uh, it's you a know? bit like most people thinking that high performance is all out effort all the time. Uh, it's like a, like a daily time to exhaustion. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, those two are mutually exclusive all out and all the time cannot be yeah. happening at the same time. Yeah. You know? Hey, listen, Stephen, I could talk to you forever. In fact, there's a couple of hours in the can here. So look, um, you know, we've sorted periodization out. Um, <laughs> we've sorted certainty versus confidence. Uh, we've we've launched some new metrics in the face of uh, hair in the yogurt and the brakes check. So I think we've had a good, good old chat. I'm much appreciated. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, well, it's great to touch base again. And you and I have led kind of parallel lives, uh, you know, and, and I, I kind of pay attention to what's going on with you. And and, uh, and I'm sometimes afraid to think, oh, I could never do what he's doing. Other times a little envious. So it's been good touching yeah. base. <laughs> yeah. Superb. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. You can follow Stephen on Twitter at Stephen Sailor. That's E-I in Sailor. And check out his YouTube channel as well. He's got some fantastic content about training. You can follow us on Twitter at support underscore champs and me at Ingham underscore Steve. And give us a follow on LinkedIn, our company page for some of the latest updates and snippets from the podcast.